Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Again, welcome to North Main. I'm super glad you're here on this first Sunday of the new year. And it's actually the first day of the new year. And it's a great commitment to be out on a day like this, especially if you were up beyond midnight last night celebrating the new year. So again, we welcome you. Welcome you if you're joining us online or at home today. Um, As I mentioned earlier, every year we take a theme that we feel the Lord has impressed upon us as a staff, a board, and as a congregation. And we do a deep dive into that theme throughout Scripture throughout the whole year. And as I mentioned, we felt years ago that God wanted us to take a fruit of the Spirit every year. And we are now in the year of kindness. And it's interesting, as we've gone through each of these years, these these words, these fruit of the Spirit have been challenged. 2019 was a year of love. As we look through the scripture to find out what love is, what God's love truly is, and how we are to love God and others with that kind of love, uh, we were challenged that year. 2020, do you guys remember 2020? That was a year of joy, wasn't it? That was the second fruit of the Spirit. In 2021, were you challenged with patience? 2022, love, joy, peace was 2021. <laughs> Were you challenged in peace? And this past year that we just finished was patience. Were you challenged in patience last year? I'm going to guess coming into 2023, kindness is going to be challenging. And I'm not talking about just kindness the way our secular culture defines it, but kindness the way God defines it. And as we dig into scripture this year, we're going to unpack what does kindness, biblical, God-giving, spirit-led kindness look like. And so we're going to start today with a theme verse that's going to stick with us, that's going to kind of overshadow us or be the undercurrent of our year, which is that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I'm going to unpack that passage of Scripture in just a moment. Uh, as I was studying for this passage or and this message to kick off this new year, um, I came across a study, and it's actually a 10-year-old study. So this is actually a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, this study was done. And I don't think it's changed, and I don't think it's irrelevant, which is why I'm bringing it up. But it was done by the University of Texas under the leadership of Professor David Buss. It was done of 37 cultures, and there were 16,000 people that were a part of this study. And they were asked... What is it that you desire most in a spouse or a mate? Do you want to know the one thing they said that was a non-negotiable that they desired most in a spouse? Guess what our theme is for the year? Rarely have I seen a couple devolve into a dissolved marriage that ends in divorce where both persons are kind to one another in the marriage. Would you agree? 
I'm not saying that that should supplant love or joy or any of these other things in the marriage, but it's easier to stay in love with somebody who is kind to you, isn't it? Yeah? And so marriages that last are marriages, oftentimes where both parties are kind to one another, not just in words but in actions. And kindness, as you'll find out for this month, kindness is a verb, but it's not in our English dictionaries. It's considered a noun. But our, for our purposes, I came up with a definition for our year for kindness that we're going to be functioning from. And kindness is an act of compassion motivated by a love for God and others. As I read through the scripture and have for years, I find that God's kindness comes to us in this way. He loves us and acts toward us in compassionate ways in so many different ways that are beyond our wildest imaginations, and he loves us through those compassionate acts. And he expects us to love him and others the same way. Our passage that we've been working from for the fruit of the Spirit is this, Galatians 5, and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love the tagline to this because he says there's no law against these things. And I think that spans many cultures throughout history. There is no law against these types of things. Now, you might want to debate that with me, and we can some other time, but I would contend that there is legitimately no law against these things. Romans 2, starting with verse 1, if you'll read along with me. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, as I most often do from here, just because it's an easier read, uh, but you can use the version of your choosing, okay? Paul has given the intro to his letter to the Roman Christians, okay? He's written this letter, and honestly, the book of Romans is his magnum opus. If he's writing a masterpiece of theological work, it's, his other letters are good, but Romans tends to be kind of the capstone of his theology. He is contending oftentimes against Jewish Christians, those who were born Jew and who converted to Christianity because they believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And he's contending against them and other false teachers at times because the Jewish Christians wanted to translate over their own traditions as basically prerequisites for becoming a Christian. For instance, circumcision and the dietary laws and all that. So Paul was really pushing back against a lot of that in many of his letters, as well as these Gentile Christians who came into the fold, if you will, who were bringing in their culture and their dynamics and saying, well, it's about Plato's philosophies. And you see some of the overtones in the passages of Scripture that Paul writes in the New Testament where he's combating both lines of thought. A different sermon for a different time. But he writes Romans, chapter 1, he's really setting the stage for what's to come. And then he gets into chapter 2, and listen to what he says. You may think you can condemn such people. Well, what people is he talking about? Go back and read chapter 1. He's talking about the people that didn't grow up with the law. 
He's talking about the people that had fallen into sin and committed some atrocious things. He talks about homosexuality in the first one. This is one that is a lot of buzz in our theology today and in our culture today that seems to be really polarizing, and it shouldn't be, quite frankly. And he's saying to the Jewish Christians he's writing to, you think you can condemn such people like this. Now listen, church. We've got to be very careful how we parse God's word and how we understand it. So let's break this apart today. You think you can condemn such people like that, those blatant sinners without the law, but you're just as bad. He's talking to Jewish Christians, keep this in mind, and you have no excuse, exclamation point. Why? Because they had the law, they knew the law, they knew exactly what God had expected, and they didn't do a good job of it either. They failed miserably, which is why Christ came. This is the whole context of Paul's writings is the law doesn't make you right with God. It's Christ who makes you right with God. But he says you're just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. He's like, when you point a finger, you got how many pointing back at you? You know that old saying. But that's what he's really saying. You think you've got it all figured out and you can point a finger at everybody else for blatantly living the wrong way, but you're the same way. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 15. He tells a parable about two brothers. There's one supposedly good brother who is faithful to his father and stays home, and then there's this younger brother who's a bit of a jerk and wants to live the party life, and so he comes to his dad to get his inheritance early before his dad dies, which is basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead so I could have my money already. And Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul's saying here. There's two camps there's those who seem to have the appearance of good works. But honestly, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. That's what he tells us in Romans chapter, just the next chapter over. We all stand condemned by our own sinful nature and behavior. Right? Am I losing you this? I realized it was a late night and this is New Year and you feel obligated to be here because it's a New Year's Day and Brandon said we should have church. Are you with me? Okay, just making sure. I don't want to lose you here. He says, you're condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. So what is he saying? Everybody stands condemned. Woohoo! Right? Is that what he's not telling us? These people are wicked because they blatantly do bad things, but you guys are just as bad because you've deceived yourselves into believing that you're good enough on your own merits to earn your way into the kingdom of God. But the law can't make you right with God. Then who can be saved? Those who have submitted their lives to Christ. That's the whole treatise of Paul's writing in Romans. So what does he go on to say? Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment? 
when you do the same things. And here's our verse. See, don't you see, he says, how wonderfully kind, and there's your key word for the day, how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? Don't you see how kind, tolerant, and loving God is with you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? Of all people who can stand in judgment of us, who can stand and condemn us, he has refrained from striking us dead. My dad used to have a saying back in the days before he got saved that if he were to step foot in the church, the, the ceiling would cave in. Have you probably heard other people say that, right? Tempting fate by stepping into an arena like this when you know deep down that you are not the quality and or caliber of a kind of person who could step into it. Well, that, that's this same thing that we're talking about here, right? Some people thought they were of a quality and caliber that could step in and others didn't. Jesus says this even when he calls Levi, who would become Matthew, the tax collector, into his fold. And, and, and he says, I want you to be a follower of mine. And, and you remember right after he calls Matthew, he goes to Matthew's home. And Matthew's super stoked that Jesus has chosen him. He's willing to leave behind all of this corrupt tax collecting and stuff. Well, there's another sermon for another time. But he goes into his home, and Matthew throws this party. And it's a party that's that most of us would say, oh no, I can't go to a party like that. You know, it's one of those kind of parties because we're holy and Matthew's unholy and all of Matthew's friends are unholy. And so the religious leaders who had been stalking Jesus from the beginning of his ministry are standing and watching this from the outside. And they're starting to have these little conversations among themselves. And they're in close enough earshot to Jesus that they're beginning to condemn Jesus' behavior because doesn't he? No, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? That's kind of the behavior, the snooty, uppity kind of behavior because they've got it figured out and, oh, Jesus just doesn't know, right? And what does Jesus say? Oh, I, he, these one-liners. Only God could give these one-liners. Don't you know it's the sick or those who know that they are sick that need a doctor, not those who think that they're healthy. That's the way the New Living Translation translates it. It's those who know they have an intimate knowledge of their own sickness and how far they are from God. They're the ones in need of help, but just as much as the other ones. It's those who think that they are healthy that are the worst off. Like the older brother in the picture of Luke chapter 15, he, he, the younger brother comes home and what happens? The older brother finds out the younger brother's come home. He has a bone to pick with his younger brother because dad has now brought him back in, given him the royal ring, which is basically saying you're now my son again and you still get equal opportunity to the inheritance at the end of my death even though you squandered the portion I gave you. He restores him back to the status he once had, and the older brother's like, ah, uh -uh, that's not justice. But see, that's the kind of kindness God has. He refrains from wrath 
when we deserve it. That's what Paul's talking about here. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and loving God is with you? Can't you see that his kindness, his willingness to refrain from striking you in your steps is a kind action that is meant to give you time to draw you into repentance. But because you're stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And this is the part we definitely don't like to hear because we like the pretty messages of Scripture that tickle our ears and make us feel good. We don't like to hear the convicting messages that point out areas where we might be wrong. He says, for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he's saying, God is kind, but don't test it. God is long-suffering. He is willing to give you space in order to figure things out, even in your stubbornness. But there is a limit to that kindness that someday there will be a righteous act of judgment. And if you wait until that point, it's going to be too late. That's what Jesus, or that's what Paul is saying here. Okay? He will judge everyone according to what they've done. Oh, that sounds like work righteousness. So if I've done more good things than bad things, then I'm good. If I've done more bad things than good, no, that is a Muslim or Islamic perspective. That's the way the, the, the Islamic religion believes, that if you've done more good deeds than bad deeds, according to the Quran, you will end up in Allah's heaven. If you've done more bad deeds than good, according to the Quran, you will end up in what they deem hell. This is not an apples-to-apples conversation here. This is not what Paul is talking about, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 7, he will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps um, on doing what is evil. Well, then here begs the question, well, what is the definition of evil? How is what I'm doing maybe evil versus good? How do I know? I get this a lot. And this is where the culture outside of the church has had an influence on the church. And let me explain why. Because the church has not done a good job, nor its leaders, of educating the people in the word of God. They do this pop psychology, feel good kind of messages with a verse sprinkled here and a verse sprinkled there instead of actually getting into the meat of the word so that as people are trained up into fully devoted followers of Christ, they go out into the world, they're able to withstand the wiles of the devil who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But many of our churches and our culture are so desperate to get people to come through their doors that they will refrain from the tough messages and only give the flowery speeches so that it makes people feel good and you can pack an arena and get a bunch of money coming through so you could do whatever you want to in the ministry. It's shameful, and those teachers and preachers will be held in judgment of how they handle the Word of God. This is why when I, <clears throat> ever since the first day I started ministry as a vocation and a calling, the one verse, and you've heard me quote this before, is from James. 
He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, for you will be judged more strictly. Wait a minute, there's a harsher judgment for those of us in the ministry who step into the, yes, because we hold sway over the lives of others in what we say or in what we don't say. And you better bet that there's a stricter judgment. Why? Because some of us may be leading the sheep to slaughter where others of us may be leading them to the foot of the cross. And I don't presume to know it all or to have it all figured out, but what I do know is that the more you read and study and show yourself to prove by getting into this word, when stuff comes up out in the culture that seems very convincing, when you measure it against God's word, you can tell very clearly whether it's from God or from the enemy. And if you can't tell, then the question is, how deep are you into the word? And you say, well, I'm just starting out. I mean, I'm, this is new to me. It's okay. That's why it is so vitally important that you are a part of a community of faith who is seeking God through his word and prayer and really leaning into him. A biblically-based church that is unpacking these things and really having the hard conversations even when they're difficult and uncomfortable. He will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth instead of living lives of wickedness. There will be calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what's evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Why is he singling out the Jews first and then the Gentile? Well, because the Jews were the chosen people that were given the word first. They were meant to be a light to the world, that city on the hill, to be a blessing to the nations. Go back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first called Abraham, who was the father of this nation called Israel. They were the first to get the message, the law, the good news of God, and they botched it and ruined it. And then God sent the Messiah, Jesus, into the world through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through to David. And then, as we know from Christmas last week, this child that was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, was born, and he would fulfill that agreement made to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations, finally, once and for all. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Now, he goes on. Let me finish this real quick. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. Wait a minute. That's not fair. Is it? Well, let's hear what he said. If we took that out of context, which is often taken out of context, then we would be teaching a false teaching. When Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, <clears throat> excuse me, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. Guess what? Has any Jew ever completely obeyed the law of Moses perfectly? One. And in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us, Jesus says, 
I didn't, don't think that I have come to abolish the law. Rather, I've come to fulfill it. And what does he mean by that? He's like, because nobody else up to this point has been able to do it, I'm going to do it. And I'll do it perfectly. And in so doing, I will have signed the contract and fulfilled it in full. And he did as he gave his life. And he signed that deal through his blood. And yes, it was a blood covenant, for we know that Jesus at the Last Supper said, with the cup, do you remember? Take and drink, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the sins of many. And so, he goes on in verse 13, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. If, we, if he was translating that today, merely going to church doesn't make you right with God. Merely giving money at the offering time doesn't make you right with God. Merely going through the motions and doing the right things doesn't make you right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Now I want you to, I want you to understand this. <clears throat> Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Obey my commands. If Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, and he fulfilled the law perfectly, and he says, listen, if you want to be my follower, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. And he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Then what are we living by? We're living by what many scholars call the law of grace. It is by grace through faith that we have been saved in Jesus Christ. This is often what Paul speaks of, especially in the book of Romans, when he talks about being saved by grace through faith. Even the Gentiles who do not have God's law written, God's written law, show that they know that the law, uh, know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without even having heard it. Do you know what he's talking about? Some of your versions say the law written on the heart. There is a strong held doctrinal belief that God created, not only created us in his image, but that image is an imprint of his divine nature on each and every one of us. That doesn't mean everyone is saved. That doesn't mean everyone is his child. And I hear this going around, you've probably heard me say this before, not everybody is a child of God. Everybody is a creation of God, a divine creation of God imbued with potential and possibility, but we've all sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. And so what it takes to be saved, to be a child of God, is to receive Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and to step into that grace and that free gift of salvation. Then we become adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God with the same rights and privileges of what it means to live as princes and princes is prince, princes apostrophe is and prince, you know what I'm talking about. Guys and gals of God, okay? <clears throat> they demonstrate, the Gentiles, that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they're doing right. <clears throat> you ever have your conscience sway you? Even those of you that may, we're kind of living in a day and age 
where biblical literacy has gone by the wayside. And so many of us in our culture have no clue of the standards of Christ. Much like in in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, there were those that didn't know the Bible of the day, the Jewish law. There's some that instinctively obey it because they know this is why you get this, uh, this, this argument in the secular culture. Well, I'm a good person. I know right from wrong. Well, yes, in many ways you do. You see a lot of secular people who are not believers in Christ that do a lot of great things instinctively because there's something in them that knows right from wrong. It's the image of God. But God desires to restore that image to perfection through Christ. This is why Peter in his writings in the New Testament can say, you need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or you need to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. How can we do that? You can't except through Christ. Again, you hear me quote this often, John chapter 14, verse 6, one of my favorite verses. Jesus is responding to his disciples' questions. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except, how? Through me. It is, he is the gate, the door. You cannot enter. John chapter 10, he talks about the sheep and the sheepfold. And he says that I, the shepherd, am the gate. You can't enter in over the fence. You have to come through me. <clears throat> we don't like the ex- exclusivity in our culture. We don't like exclusive things. Because it seems hoity-toity. But the reality is, if there is no other way, truly, if that is the truth, there is no other way, would it be a truthful thing for Jesus to say anything other than that? If there were other ways to God, through Hinduism, Islam, uh, Baha'ism, or anything else like that, if there were other ways, then Jesus would have said... There are other ways. But this is what we call the law of non-contradiction. For Jesus to make a truth claim like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, either it is true or it is false. And if he says he is the truth, then everything he says is true. And for anything, if he were to be contradictory to that truth statement, then he should never be accepted as a good teacher or a great man. Just saying. Jesus leaves no room in the middle. You're either for me or against me. Okay? All right. Guess what? We're almost done, I promise. You're like, you haven't gotten to your points yet. Here, real quickly. It's the new year. Woohoo, been building up. All right. uh, Here's the thing. God's kindness leads to repentance, and our kindness should lead others to God. If you don't catch anything else, that's the key point. God's kindness, lead, God's kindness always leads to repentance, or at least it should, unless you're stubborn, too stubborn for it. And our kindness should lead others to God. Okay? And we notice in that verse, it says he is kind and tolerant and loving. All right, so let's talk about kindness as tolerance real quick. 
It's not the tolerance of the world. This is a buzzword that has been taken over by secular culture. Tolerance in our culture is meant you should accept whatever anybody's standards and just turn a blind eye to your own convictions and truth. Just shut up. That's tolerance in our culture. But tolerance in this, this word translated as tolerance in Greek is called forbearance. And it says this, it's a good-natured tolerance that delays enforcing rights or claims or privileges. So as a believer in Christ, yes, we are to be tolerant, but to be tolerant the way God calls us to be tolerant by his definition, not by the world's definition of tolerance, which means, oh, it's okay, you do whatever you want, little fella, okay? No, you're good, your truth is good, my truth is good, and when our truths conflict with each other, we're still good, right? No. Kindness is not the acceptance of evil. Thank you. Kindness is not the acceptance of evil. It is the presence of patience in the midst of chaos. It means I'm not going to be reactive towards you when you are being hateful, rude, vindictive, or living in a way that contradicts how I think. I'm going to extend a hand of grace and love. I'm not going to avoid the truth. I will speak the truth in love. And I will love you regardless of who you are or how you act. Why would I say that? Because scripture commands us to do that. Jesus, in fact, said that we should even love our what? And to pray for them. In our human nature, we struggle against that. But we are to be kind toward others the way God is kind to us, where he gave us enough room to come to faith in him. We need to give people enough room to come to faith in him. And that means when we encounter somebody who would be antithetical to the Christian religion, we don't just turn a blind eye or snub our nose. We wait for opportunity. We treat them with a kindness and love that goes beyond human nature and into this supernatural realm and hopefully will provide us a bridge into their lives. Some people have this uncanny knack and ability to bridge that gap because they've been gifted with this thing called evangelism that can bridge the gap into the secular world a lot easier, but that doesn't let any of us off the hook. For we've all been called to go and make disciples, not just those who are gifted in evangelism. But there are some with this uncanny ability that can go in with a truth statement quick and easy, well, I'll say easy, quick and be able to transform by the power of God, a community, a people, or a group, or an individual. Tolerance is what we need, but the tolerance of God is what we carry. Kindness is patience, too. Patience means patient endurance of pain or unhappiness. This is tough. When somebody does something toward us, it doesn't mean we have to sit down, roll over, and take it. Okay? I want you to hear me. But I also want you to hear me very clearly. We are not to respond in kind. Don't respond evil for evil, but overcome evil with good, is what we're told in Scripture. Vengeance is whose? The Lord's. Is vengeance ours in any circumstance or situation? No. Who is the final author and judge of all acts in the world? 
not us. And I said this to my class this morning. We haven't been put in a position. So in a courtroom, where the judge sits is where? He sits right here, or she, on this judgment seat. Now, in different cases, criminal cases, you have a jury and those kind of jewel, ju, ju, jury, not jewelry. Yeah, sorry. Jury. My <laughs> Kentucky accent just came out there. Jury. Uh, they make the judgment call and, and, the, and the judge gives the final sentencing. But in many cases, it's just the judge that's presiding over a case. And what does the judge do? He judges. Right from wrong, good from bad, based on the laws. Okay? God is the law. Okay? And God sits on his throne and he will make final judgments. And he has made judgments throughout the course of human history. You can read about it in the Old Testament. We have not been called to sit in that seat of judgment. We don't have the authority to send somebody to hell or to send them to heaven. Do you understand that? So when it says we have not been called to judge, judge not lest you be judged, that's the kind of judgment we're talking about. But we have been called to judge in a different way. We can judge right from wrong. And that's a judgment statement to where, okay, I see what God's word says and what your life is like is not lining up with this. And because I love you, I'm not judging you by calling you out or rebuking you for this behavior, but I want to see you back in this place so that God will not judge you guilty for your sins. Does this make sense? A couple of you think it does make sense. I've not been called to judge somebody. I can't say go to hell. Okay? I don't have that authority. I may be able to say that to somebody, but I don't have the authority to send them there. I'm not the judge. But I have been called to discern right from wrong, good from bad. And it behooves each and every person in this room and in the body of Christ to be discerners of the truth, to lean into God, to lean into his word, to be deep into prayer and the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit into situations, conversations, to where we call people out. We edify them, encourage them, we rebuke them when necessary, and we are open to the same things. That is what a community of faith should look like, this dynamic relationship of ebb and flow where we are challenging one another as iron sharpens iron. And yes, that means sometimes there are sparks within the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean when there are sparks, you take your toy or your blankie and you go to another church until there are sparks there. And then you take your toy or your blankie and you go to, no, you work it out. Amen. I heard an amen over here from a little voice. I love it. <laughs> Lastly, kindness is impartial. <laughs> Do you know God's going to judge us all based on the same, same standard? You're not going to get there by having given a million dollars to the kingdom work. You're not going to get there by the status you held. You're not going to get there if you're Billy Graham unless Billy Graham knew the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which I believe he did. It's not going to be based on your name, your status, who your mom or dad or grandfather or grandmother was. It's not going to be by any of that. 
And trust me, in 20-some years of ministry, I've heard it all. Well, do you know who my dad is? Nope. And sometimes, most of the time, I don't. I remember, let me give you a little, uh, yeah, okay, give me a second. I was a professor for a while at Warner Southern College, which is now Warner University in Lake Wells, Florida. And uh, I had a group of second-year students, and I was teaching a theology class, one of my favorite subjects, by the way. And so as I'm teaching this class, there's this one student where you have a couple that are just like, they don't turn their assignments in on time. What they do turn in is, and so you're like, okay, this is college level work. You got to step it up. You're not in high school anymore. And you're second year college student. You should know better. And so the final assignment, this kid is barely eking out a grade to pass and he turns in his final paper for the semester. This was his, this is the capstone piece, right? It's not a make or break assignment, but it is a huge chunk of the assignment that if you fail it and you're in bad shape, it's not gonna be good. And so he turns in this assignment, having been given all the details, the instructions, everything he needs, and he doesn't even do the bare minimum that the instructions require. And I fail the assignment for him. This is right before Christmas break. Great time to give a bad grade to somebody. And I said, or he, he sent me a scathing email. Do, do you know who my father is? And I'm like, no. Well, he's one of the administrators of the school, and he will have your job. And I'm like, please send him my way. I have your whole vitae of assignments, and I would love to show him your work. And then it went radio silent for about two weeks. Didn't know where that sat. And he emailed me back. And I'm wondering, this is pure speculation, if he didn't have a conversation with his dad. And his dad said, you putz. Are you serious? You said that to your professor? You need to go to, I don't know. But needless to say, two weeks later, he wrote me an email said, I was just under a lot of pressure, and I'm so sorry. And I, He did not fail the class, by the way. He eked by with the, C, the lowest C- minus you can get to pass my class. <laughs> he barely made it. God's kindness is impartial, just like that. He doesn't care your status, your condition, your ethnicity, it's not about your race or anything else. And within the body, this is one of those things. Let me just say this. Within the body of Christ, there should be no distinction of color, ethnicity, age. There shouldn't. In the early church, when they met together after Christ had, had been dead, resurrected, and ro uh, ascended to heaven, and he gave the commission, and the Holy Spirit came, and they were the body of Christ. You can read that in Acts chapter 2. They met together daily. You know when they met together? It was the aristocracy, those who were the rulers of the land, who sat beside slaves within the same assembly. Because when they stepped into that space, and actually not just when they stepped into that space, but wherever they went, they were equals. It wasn't this equity that is being pushed by the culture where everybody should be forced to be the same and have the same outcomes. It was equality of opportunity where when they stepped into that arena, the way God sees them was the way they saw each other on the same playing ground. They were judged by the same standards. 
not by different standards for some, because some were wealthier or had more status. And that's the way it should be in the body of Christ. Should be in the body of Christ. But sadly, it's not always the case. Because there's an arrogance, a pompous, prideful arrogance that sometimes invades the space of the body of Christ to where we snub our nose at others just because they aren't at this level that we are or that we've deceived ourselves that we're at. Our worship team's going to come forward and close this out, and I'm going to give you the conclusion of the message today and a challenge for this year. A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you're familiar with him, one of my favorite authors, he write, he's written a ton of books, had, had written a ton of books, he's now passed on. Uh, the early 20th century to mid-20th century is when he wrote and evangelized, and he says this, listen to what he, quote, what he says, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us, sinful men and women, is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, it's the tolerant, patient, and impartial nature of God that brought salvation to us rather than destruction. It is God's kindness that truly does lead us to repentance. It's when we come to grips with the fact that he loves me in spite of myself, what more can I do but fall at his feet? It's God's kindness that truly leads us to repentance. God's promises are not slow in being accomplished for his mercies are new every morning. However, someday, and maybe even in the near future, Jesus will return and as the final act of kindness, the world will experience a final judgment that will once and for all deal the final blow to sin and death. Those who have believed in Jesus will receive everlasting life. Those who have rejected him will receive everlasting punishment because they've chosen that, not because God has condemned them to that. God allows you to have what you choose, even if it's rejecting him. In the meantime, those of us who believe in Christ and have received salvation must take the light of Christ, hear me on this, into the world so that the world may know of the loving kindness of God who desires for them to know him. The kindest thing we could ever do is to show people the kindness of God because God showed that kindness to us when we were at our worst. So this year, be thinking about kindness and practical applications of that. We will be giving you challenges throughout the year, like pay for somebody's meal as you're going through a drive-thru. Have you ever done that before? You're at the checkout counter, you say, what's the person behind me's meal? Could you just put their meal on my tab too? You don't know them. You don't know what kind of a day they've had, but if you feel prompted by that, do you know the Holy Spirit can use that to transform somebody in a car behind you that you'll never meet? It's something that simple. You don't, it, it, see, kindness isn't about always being at the forefront and getting the pat on the back. Sometimes it's doing a gesture without even anybody ever knowing it. I, I don't know where you are. I, I don't know the anger, the frustrations of your life. But it's time to diffuse those things. 
Anger rarely leads to righteousness. And I said rarely. But kindness always, almost always leads to repentance. If you need to pray this morning because you're struggling with anger, rage, frustration, you don't know how to be kind because you resent this, that, or the other thing. Maybe you've got to get rid of this, that, or the other thing that's holding you down like an albatross on your back. You come to my right, your left, there's an altar over here. Somebody will come pray with you if you need that kind of prayer to say, I don't know how to do this. If you just need to pray alone, you can come to my left or right. There's an altar on this side. Nobody will bother you. You can just meet with the Lord and work through that there. As I mention every week, don't leave this place or leave the broadcast that you're watching right now without making a determination to make a change in some way in your life. And if you aren't at the place where, if you're at the place where you've stopped making changes, then you're dead. Literally or figuratively. We should always be changing and moving closer to God because we have not finished this race. Father, you are the kindest person in the universe. Remind us that we are to follow in your footsteps. Forgive us where we faltered and been unkind and rude to others, where we've allowed emotions of frustration, disappointment, anger to overtake us to where we react in a way that is unkind. Help us to live a life of kindness that helps to lead others to you, knowing that your kindness leads to repentance. As the hands, the feet, the body of Christ, Lord, lead us in the ways that you would have us go. God, direct our steps, direct our speech, our language, everything that we are. May we be so fully submitted to you through the power of your Holy Spirit, following the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we step into these divine appointments and arenas with a sense of expectation, though not always, God, situations that are comfortable. And help us to be obedient, to speak the truth in love, and to bridge the gap that exists between the church and the world. Help us to be light and salt. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.